Welcome and happy Friday. It's July 15th, 2016. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I'm here with Paul Brady, Aaron Florio, and Sebastian Modak. They are all editors for Condé Nast Traveler. We're all in-house today. My name is Brad Rickman, and our topic of the week... Oh, wait, we have actually... It's not really a cocktail, but we have a drink that we can actually talk about. It's very special. Mm. It's tequila. We but, like tequila. But it's, who made it? This is a special tequila. I don't fully understand his involvement. Justin Timberlake is involved with this tequila. Mm. And you can taste the Timberlake. Am I right? <laughs> Absolutely. Can you taste the Timberlake? Yeah. And it relates to our theme of the podcast because... Because it showed up in my office today and we were out of other things to drink. Uh, it is actually a Sousa 901, if that means anything to people out there. Um, a triple distilled tequila. Okay. Enough about the tequila. Let's drink some. The topic of the week is Africa, a very big topic indeed, a continental topic. I'm going to be the outsider. You guys have all spent time in Africa, done a lot of research around it. So I'm going to be the naive traveler here. I've never been, and I do feel like even though I'm inside the business, even though I work with you guys every day and my desk is six feet away from Paul's, it does seem to me like Africa has become very buzzy in the last year or so, and, and it's kind of intensified in the last few months. I know many people who have gone, many people have booked trips, excited to go. They seem to have gone to many different parts of Africa. Why is this uh, suddenly on everybody's radar? Well, I don't know if it's suddenly on everybody's radar, but I, I just judging from what I've seen or from what I've heard, I think Africa has sort of jumped from becoming that kind of one-off bucket list place to a place that people are returning to. And in so doing, that's kind of in a really good way, you know, making all of the countries feel very distinct in a way that, you know, we used to always group it together, like Africa was this entity, but now, you know, people see Kenya for its value and they know it different from Botswana versus Ethiopia versus Senegal. So like the individual countries, I think people are becoming a little bit more familiar with and therefore are traveling uh, a lot more. Do you have a sense of what that conventional view of Africa is? Like the trip, to, what is the bucket list trip to Africa? That, that I, mean, I think it's the all-inclusive safari. I think that's always been the traditional way to travel. You fly in, you make a connection maybe in a major city, but you don't spend any time in it. You get flown out into the bush where you're taken care of in a luxury lodge, and then you fly back out again, and that's it. And I think Aaron's right. I think people are starting to realize that it is a huge place with a huge diversity of experiences you can have. And so, yeah, maybe you do go on that amazing, all-inclusive, luxurious safari in the Okavango Delta in Botswana, but then maybe you want to come back and check out Addis Ababa as a city or, like, travel to West Africa and see Ghana and travel around that region. And re people are starting to realize that there's more you can do on the continent than just, you know, check off the big five and leave. Yeah, and let's not forget that not that long ago sort of nobody wanted to go to Africa because there was this big Ebola scare. And in some parts of the continent, that was a legitimate fear. And in other parts of the continent were just totally, uh, you know, off the map unfairly because of their association with that outbreak. And so for years you had people with all of this sort of pent up demand. And finally, now that they've, I think, you know, read the news and understood a little bit better what's going on, you know, they're saying, oh my God, we've been putting off that trip for so long. Now's our time to go. And when you talk to the tourism operators there, whether they're safari people or people that work for the tourism boards of the of countries, particularly in Southern Africa, 
you know, that's all they talk about is that people are coming after putting up their trips for years and years, and now they're just wanting to see as much as they can for as long as they can. Does that feel like it's connected to any kind of change in media coverage, you know, outside of Africa itself in the United States and Europe? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I think we at our magazine have done a pretty fair job and, you know, not to toot our own horns, but I think we've done a pretty fair job of talking about safaris, both what you can do on a safari and what you can't do on a safari. And then also talking about some of the more, I think, esoteric or, or less traveled corners of Africa. You know, in our in our summer issue, we talked about a few places that I think people were surprised to see or, or surprised to hear about, whether in Botswana or in Ethiopia. But there's a lot to see there. And Sebastian, you, you bring up a good point. It's a huge place with a huge diversity of experiences. And, and back to Aaron's thought about it being a bucket list trip, you definitely, you can go back there over and over and over and never have the same experience twice. Right. You could check off 10 items on your bucket list, you know, yeah, absolutely. on one continent. So can you guys deconstruct it a little bit, like get a little bit specific for listeners who may be less familiar than you are. How should they be thinking about different parts of the continent and what kinds of trips um, they would be taking to those? Okay, sure. I mean, you know, the classic place to go for safari is Eastern Africa, which kind of had a bit of a lull for a while based on events. And this isn't Ebola related, although for some people who were less informed, like Paul mentioned, it fed into it. But, you know, there are some events that happened in the past couple of years in Eastern Africa that kept people away. I'm talking about Tanzania and Kenya. But, you know, that's the classic place to go to see the Great Migration. And that's sort of what kicked off safari travel decades ago for, you know, the Europeans and the Americans going in to see that. So obviously... Eastern Africa, those countries specifically are great for that, but also in Southern Africa where you've got Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa. I mean, their safari is just as strong. You're going to have a different uh, sort of quantity of animals that you're seeing and different types of migration paths that you're seeing, but those two regions are excellent for safari. If you move up, you know, obviously Northern Africa, which is something that tends to not be talked about when you're talking about Africa, I think, you know, when it comes to Northern Africa, which is Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, those countries above uh, the Sahara, people, you know, sort of tend to leave them out of this discussion. But yeah, of course, they totally yeah, they forget that they're part of Africa too. Um, I remember being in Cape Town not that long ago, and, and somebody there asked me, Is this your first trip to Africa? I said, No, I've been here once before. They said, Oh, really? Where did you go? I said, Morocco. Yeah, and it they doesn't count. This face, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might as well have said Tokyo, you totally. know, because it is. It's so far away and it's yeah. so different, yeah. uh, you know, in landscape and culture and language and everything that, that it, it isn't, you know, I mean, it, it feels it, removed. It feels, it feels totally removed. different. Um, but yeah, you know, unfortunately for Northern Africa, a lot of countries there are sort of off limits to travelers right now with Morocco being the, I think the big exception Mm -hmm. that that they're having very strong tourism, uh, not just from European travelers, but also American travelers Mm -hmm. who are realizing, you know, if you're on the East coast, you can be in Casablanca in less time than it takes you to get to say, you know, Berlin. Yeah. And actually on that note, I'm glad that you brought up Casablanca because if, if, uh, People I know are always confused about how quickly or how easily they can move around the content. If you're going to Morocco now, Casablanca just launched a new, well, sorry, a new direct flight just launched from Casablanca going straight to Nairobi. So now people can really easily oh, move wow. across continent. Yeah. Well, see, there you go. And that's exactly it. It's, you can have a northern African mm-hmm. experience. And go you straight to east. Go straight to east, to mm-hmm. a safari. And then from Nairobi, you can go down to the southern part of Africa and mm-hmm. go, you know, whether it's... Uh, adventure traveling, diving with sharks, I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff that you can do. You go wine tasting in South Africa. Oh, that's what you would do, Aaron, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if you were going to go coastal, for example, what kinds of places would be options for you? If you wanted to be close to the water, if you either wanted to dive or if you wanted to do some other kind of boating or any activity like that. I'd say 
the first one that comes to mind for me is Zanzibar off the coast of Tanzania. It was a huge surprise to me, just the beauty of the beaches on that island. Um, you know, you kind of know it as this really historic center for trade from the Middle East into Africa. And, you know, you see that as well in Stonetown, which is this kind of magical city of labyrinths and, you know, everything's made of stone, hence the name. Um, <laughs> but then you go out of Stonetown, you drive around the island a little bit, and you come to these beaches with beautiful hotels, by the way, on the beaches. And it's just, it's amazing. And it's, you know, you have the kind of beach that you'd see in the Seychelles or something, um, but without the kind of huge resorts and the crowds that come with those resorts. So it's a much more sort of isolated beach experience. So that's one that comes to mind along, you know, the Kenyan coast as well. Places like Mombasa are very popular for that reason. But for a very different kind of coastal experience, for example, you could go to Namibia in, in the south. And that's like... My dream trip. <laughs> You're yeah, not going to go into the water. It's freezing cold. It's an Antarctic current that comes up. But you are going to, you know, the, the sites you see, it's called the Skeleton Coast, again, for a reason, because it feels completely abandoned, besides, like, the occasional shipwreck that you run into. And surprisingly, some of the best oysters you'll ever have hmm. in Namibia. Um, so it's a very different kind of coastal experience than, like, the kind of beach vacation of, of Zanzibar. But that's just another example. And also, you know, you can really go surfing as well on the west coast of that's Africa. True, yeah. I had a lot of friends when I was in Europe that would go down to places like Senegal and go surfing. Or Cape Verde, for mm -hmm. example. Or, I mean, obviously, Morocco as well is really popular for surfing. What about uh, South Africa on the coast, like Cape Town? I mean, it's Paul, amazing. You, Paul was recently <laughs> yeah. there. I, so. I was just there. I mean, yeah. I, I, for me, the allure of Cape Town is this idea that you're wedged between, you know, the oceans and the mountains and you have this sort of rawness of very southern natural forces that are, you know, much stronger than any human intervention could possibly hope to tame, all coalescing into this tiny ecosystem, right? And so you have these huge clouds coming over Table Mountain and you have this frigid water with great white sharks, but, you know, surfers who don't care and they're yeah, out there and totally. uh, battling these huge waves and you've got this great coastal promenade that recalls, you know, Montevideo or Rio and it just runs for miles and miles and miles along the, the seawall and then you have this all within a few miles of, of everything else, whether it's the great restaurants, the beautiful wineries that, that Aaron mentioned, you know, just an hour outside of Cape Town, some of the best wineries and the most beautiful wineries uh, you'll find anywhere in the entire world. And it's all sort of jammed together at the corner of this continent that feels by turn sort of very, very lonely, but also incredibly sophisticated and metropolitan. And not to mention, you can drive to the most southern tip of Africa right. from Cape Town, and it's one of the most scenic drives in the world, I think. I mean, you drive down Chapman's Peak Drive. Did you do this drive when you went to the Cape of Good I didn't have time Hope? to do this because I was too busy doing all sorts of other wacky adventures. <laughs> but, it's, you know, it's a reason to go back. I yeah, think. it's, it's you know, it's one of those drives that's just two-lane road, cliff into the ocean on one side, mountains you on the other. feel like you're at the end of the world. Yeah, you really literally. do feel like you're, and you, you kind of are. Kind of are, yeah. yeah. What about things like times of year versus place? Is this something, you know, are there seasonalities that people should be aware of when they're thinking about going? That's kind of a calculus that people take into account most, I think, for safaris, because mm. they're paying a lot of money. They want to make sure they can see the animals. You know, they don't want to come home and be like, I didn't see a lion, I didn't see an elephant. And I know it's talked about a lot in Botswana, specifically in the Okavango Delta, because it's, you know, the largest inland river delta in the world. So obviously rain is going to affect the distribution of water in that delta throughout the year. And the conventional wisdom about going to the delta is you have to go in the dry season. 
They say that because that's when there's less water in the floodplain. That means that animals are congregating where there is water, so it's easier to spot them. You can get around on a Land Rover pretty easily. And they say avoid the rainy season. But the rainy season, and I've been to that area of Botswana both times of year, the rainy season is actually has a completely different appeal because it's when the whole delta basically turns into a, just a giant floodplain. And so, you know, instead of being on a jeep, you're on a Morocco, one of like the traditional canoes, and you're seeing just a totally kind of different realm of wildlife. You're seeing more birds, and you're still seeing the big five, but you're seeing them deal with just water everywhere. So you're seeing elephants swimming by you and, you know, things like that. It's just a totally different experience. Plus, you get to witness that very stereotypical and stereotypical for a reason, Southern African storm rolling in from miles away, you know, like the sort of an infinite horizon and then suddenly these clouds just rolling in at incredible speeds. It's like speeds. dramatic natural theater. <laughs> exactly. Watch, yeah. Yeah. Is there a specific time when the migration itself sort of takes place or is it happening all throughout that period? I mean, I think it depends, right, on the animals, the, the place. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not totally sure. You'd have to ask like a naturalist. Yeah. <laughs> Call David Attenborough. Yeah. <laughs> on the line. <laughs> Any other sort of seasonal highs, lows, places you should be thinking about at a given time? I guess there's like South Africa, winter versus summer. Yeah, I mean, you have to take into consideration that, you know, our summer is their winter. So right now in Cape Town, it's, it's technically winter. Um, however, you also have to remember that it's a very mild climate down there. It's very regulated. You're never going to, you're, you're going to get extreme hot, but you're never going to really get extreme cold. I, I mean... You know, it, it's Wineland, so think of uh, the temperature or the climate to be quite similar to, you know, Northern California or New Zealand or in Australia. It's, it's, it's very on par with that. doesn't change a whole lot. Yeah. You, no, it's pretty moderate. Yeah. Mm. I'd say if it's a Southern African desert adventure you're after, just don't go in the summer. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, <laughs> boiling hot. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, so I, I lived in Southern Botswana for about a year and a half, and the Kalahari Desert in the middle of summer is... I mean, it's worth seeing as like a force of nature maybe, but it's, you know, you just can't be outside for five or six hours of the day because there's no shade anywhere either. So yeah, I'd say avoid the Kalahari in the summer, but that was, that's probably common sense, right? Well, you never know. You never know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can't tell. <laughs> and so for different kinds of trips, uh, obviously there are different passions that travelers can indulge in here. Um, and I'm wondering if you guys could give any thoughts about are there any anything in particular that people who are into kind of outdoor active travel should be thinking about? I think one thing that we hear a lot about lately is this idea of the walking safari, right? Which is, if you're not familiar with safaris, traditionally you load up into these vans and you kind of drive around and you have a guide and a driver who are going to take you around to see all of the animals that you're really there to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do a fantastic job at it. And, and all of the stories that you hear from people who go to the top flight safari camps are sort of these amazing tales of the guide noticing, you know, a a leopard footprint from a hundred yards away or something. And you're kind of baffled by the ability to see these things. Uh, and that's the traditional idea. And one of the reasons that you do that is that wild animals are dangerous. And so if you need to get away from them. <laughs> yeah, you want you, the safety of your Jeep. <laughs> there's some relative safety in a Jeep and a vehicle that can uh, that is the same size as the animal and that can move faster or, or at least the same speed as it, right? But you're hearing more and more about companies that are offering, I think, walking safaris. And I think that's a huge reaction to the active travel market more generally. You know, people like going on hikes. People like getting out on foot and exploring. 
people like feeling like they're discovering things for themselves. And Mm -hmm. so the new, I think, well, maybe not brand new, but one of the trends for sure is this idea that you go with a guide who takes a rifle for safety and you kind of walk through the African bush on foot. And it's, uh, from what everything I hear, a totally amazing and revelatory experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually just did that recently when I was in Zimbabwe. And I have to say, as a city girl, I was a little bit terrified, you know, because in my mind, I kept thinking we shouldn't be out here. There's, there's, you know, lions are going to charge at us and get us. And um, of course, I mean, that, this is the big of difference, right? Of course, that right? doesn't happen. It's but there's not almost, a zoo. No, it's, it's not a zoo. But also, there's something a little bit exhilarating about that. Like I was scared, but I, I kind of loved it, and it was nice to get out of the jeep, and it was nice to sort of be on the territory and you know you see things when you're doing those walking safaris that you don't see in a jeep because you are off the path so you know you see different tracks of animals that you can get up and close to that you can't when you're in the jeep you see i mean you know not to get too graphic but this is all part of the experience you know the guide who they're so knowledgeable they really know everything and and zimbabwean guides are known to being some of the best on the continent they're sort of going through the elephant dung and, and, and deconstructing it and they can tell you where, how you know far away the elephants are or what they've just eaten or what like they last ate. Like in Jurassic Park. It's really, but <laughs> exactly. it's really, exa- it's just like Jurassic Park. It's really amazing. But to your question, Brad, if you're wanting an active adventure in Africa, this is a little bit of a curveball, but you know, there are some pockets of Africa that people don't think about that are great for outdoor adventures. And one of them is actually Uganda, where they have terrific whitewater rafting and outdoor sports. In fact, there's a place called Jinja um, on the Nile River. It's got some of the best rapids. And I was there a couple years ago. And you know, they've got these amazing, you know, instructors, a lot of Kiwis, Aussies, Canadians going in there and teaching the whitewater rafting. And, and you can have this kind of big adventure playground that I think people don't really think about which is nice. I'd also want to add that I think for the kind of outdoor person, sometimes people, even if they're very comfortable camping in the United States or camping in Europe, it's just like the thought of going camping in sub-Saharan Africa is just not, doesn't even occur to them because they think it's just completely off limits. It's, you know, too dangerous. It, there's yeah, lions. You become lion bait. You become lion are bait there, Are there bear, Kate, the, the little bear boxes out there? <laughs> no, but they do. There's a lot of the same kind of things you just have to do, you know, when you're camping in the U.S. You kind of make sure your trash is not in your tent or by your tent, you know, things like that. And there's there are amazingly run campsites that are not sort of super high-end places that, you know, where you're staying indoors. There's a giant salt pan about three and a half hours drive from the Okavango Delta called the Makadi Kadi salt pans, which is, I'm try saying that three times well fast. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, <laughs> and even after the tequila. <laughs> even after the tequila. And, um, you know, it's like a campsite anywhere else. There's someone who's there all the time um, kind of checking people in. It's somewhat fenced in to keep out hyenas. <laughs> um, but you still, feel, you still feel like you're, you know, one with kind of the nature around you. And you can do the same thing in the Kalahari Desert. You can go camping where you're just, there's no human being in sight. And there has, so I can t- say from first-hand experience, there were lions in our campsite when we camped. And you could hear them there. You could hear their footsteps. You could hear their growling. But it was an incredible experience. And the next day... When as we, long as you lived through yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> well, I, I, that's, I don't that's, know that No, that's that. my point, all right? <laughs> the next day when we kind of ran into this sort of grizzled... South African park ranger who just does this all day, every day. We told him about the experience and he was like, oh, it's no problem. And we're like, what do you mean it's no problem? Like, I heard this thing sniffing my tent. And he's like, there has never been an instance of a lion attacking a tent. 
when people have been hurt or killed while camping, it's when they're sleeping in the open air or they're sleeping on top of their cars, which a lot of people do, like on top of their Jeeps. But there's never been an instance of a lion entering a tent. So and they sleep on top of the Jeeps because they figure the lions can't get up there? Or because they, yeah, because they want, they think, they think it's like, they want to be under the stars. Romantic. They think it's romantic. Okay, yeah. well, I have a better alternative to that. Lions if you don't go, eat tents, apparently. <laughs> they don't eat tents. <laughs> not on the menu. They're not like sure what's going on. They right. smell the, they smell the yeah. human, but they're like, it I don't see like it. smells like REI. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the parks, like Wengi, for example, where I recently was, and I know this happens in Botswana and South Africa, a lot of the camps will have these it's not a room per se, but they'll build sort of treetop huts right, and yeah. you can sleep outdoors, but it's elevated and it's kind of an experience. You do it for one night and there's a guy parked below in case some wild animal comes, even though it can't out. climb the tree. <laughs> and if you, you, you got to go back down. You got to go back down if you need to use the restroom. But uh, it's, it's so you can have that experience without the risk of, you know, the lion right. sniffing at your feet. I mean, that, that to me sounds like adventure travel yeah, when you're risking I, I getting agree. eaten by an animal <laughs> sure. on your campsite. Yeah. You know, that's how does that's, that compare to zip lining? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> you think that you think that uh, sort of surfing simulator was hardcore, but then, <laughs> the morning, the then you have to go toe to toe with a lion. You know, this seems to me like it's probably something that's getting. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's getting more and more popular to sort of do a family trip to Africa. Are there any particular services or places where that is easier or more contemplable than others? Well, you know, I was at a conference and of course, there's a conference for everything these days, right? So recently I was at a conference for safari travel and African travel. And in fact, almost everyone I spoke to there was talking about our camp has added a family tent or a family villa or family programming. So the market is definitely reacting to the idea that families want to go. And as a matter of fact, our editor-in-chief last year went on a, a safari to Kenya and Tanzania and brought along her son. And I think the idea there is that people want to one, educate their kids about the world at large, but then two, you know, get in touch with them through something that they might already be passionate about. You know, kids are into animals, obviously, but also birding and, and getting out into nature. And this is a perfect way to connect with them. And I think also, right, disconnect from devices. Although a lot of these camps now have Wi-Fi, which yeah. is this kind of incredible yeah. technological achievement, I think, to be in the middle of nowhere and be able to, you know, probably catch Pokemon. But yeah, um, is that, is that yeah, thanks to Facebook and the... <laughs> Oh, and the, and the drone internet the service drone internet. over over. I, I I have no idea how they do it, and it must be phenomenally expensive, not to the guests, but to somebody. Um, <laughs> well, but yeah, I think everybody. Well, yeah. I think everybody thinks that the you know that that families are the sort of untapped market for safaris, which I think traditionally years ago were either write the bucket list retiree trip or a sort of romantic honeymoon kind of trip. And you know, it goes back to the thing that we opened on this idea that. You know, it's not that far to go to Africa and it's not that difficult and it's not that sort of, you know, oh my God, I got to save up and figure out how to do this. I mean, it's really gotten easy and there's so many, you know, great travel specialists that can decode it for you that I think families realize that and they're like, a turnkey vacation that's super cool I want to do that yeah and a lot of the big um, the big lodges such as Savvy Sands which was in Kruger which is a huge one they have uh, special guides just for children to make special children's programming and to take them out and to sort of engage them in a way that the adults probably don't need to be or to, don't want to be engaged <laughs> babysitters babysitters and also educators I mean the programs that they put together are really really smart and they are designed to engage the kids in what they are seeing and where they are so yeah yeah, it's, it's definitely, they're definitely thinking more about 
multi-generational travel. Plus, the kids are generally probably slower. So if a chase with wildlife does ensue, <laughs> they are, like, you don't have to be faster than the animal, just faster so than the slowest person a, in your uh, party. Safety precaution, bring your kids. Bring, bring your, your kids. own safety. Um, what about on the luxury side of things? What are some of the things that you guys have been looking at? I mean, we cover this a lot, right? In terms of spas, in terms of some of the more luxury um, safari experiences or getting out and away uh, uh, from the, the sort of like beaten path, what kinds of things are new and different on that front? Well, I mean, like we sort of mentioned earlier, safari and luxury, at least in the classic European and American traveler's mind, sort of go hand in hand. And and for sure, when you're saying these lodges, they're very luxurious experiences. Uh, they take very good care of you. You sort of want for nothing. And, and it, it's, it's great. I think that you know every year we're seeing uh, more inventive arguably more exclusive but also a little bit more sort of plugged into the natural environment lodges opening up for example this year they've got this amazing lodge this isn't a safari lodge but it is very clued into um, the conservation efforts there's this great lodge called Tanda, which is opened up on Tanda Island off the coast of Tanzania. It's 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 not cheap. It's ten thousand dollars a night. But you know we have not had cheap. It's, not. Yeah, it's not <laughs> cheap. But you know I think luxury. But I think if it were nine five, yeah, if it, you know <laughs> just a okay. couple couple hundred dollars too expensive. But I think also luxury is kind of redefining itself. I mean, luxury used to mean a thread count, and now luxury means an experience. And when you're going to a safari. I think the traveler and a lot of safaris are, are, are aware of this, kind of want to be more engaged in what's going on around them. So you're seeing a lot more experiential safaris, not just walking safaris, but for example, anti-poaching safaris where you can really get out there into the field and see the efforts that are going into preserving the wildlife, which you know in turn has this great domino effect for the country that it's in. There's also a lot more experiences to get into the villages and to meet the people that live on sort of the peripheries of the park. And that's kind of what's becoming the new luxury. Yeah, we ran a story back in uh, April issue that you can find on our website about a couple of new camps that have opened that are very small and very sort of, you know, I hate to use the B word about them, but they're offering these sort of very unique experiences, right? And you might call them boutique, but, you know, just for a few people in a very small concession in parts of Africa that people haven't really gone to. And I think that the broader industry is getting into this atomization, right? Where there's a different kind of safari for everyone and there's a different kind of safari camp for everyone. And, you know, the one couple that uh, runs a, well, they run two lodges called uh, Chim Chim and Little Chim Chim. And they're doing a, a lot of what Aaron is talking about. You know, they're investing heavily in their local community. They're providing jobs for people that live in the area. And they're encouraging, I think, sustainable development by building, you know, a tourism industry that perpetuates sort of continual income based on service and the idea that tourism is a sustainable model for the future where, you know, using the natural resources up is maybe less sustainable. And they're educating guests about that. And so it's not a sort of experience that you go in and there's a lot of like preaching or classroom, you know, lectures or anything like that. But I think the idea there is that to go see it firsthand is a luxury that a lot of people are traveling for, whether it's you know, uh, ecological, or they want to learn about the food that they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. They want to learn about, you know, whatever their passion is. You know, these are these are the luxuries that people are seeking out now. Have more to do with the experience and the firsthand knowledge of what's going on on the ground somewhere yeah. than it does with you know being really nice. I mean, I remember a few months ago talking to a safari operator who said, "Look, if you're going on safari in Southern Africa, it's gonna be nice. The difference is what you do." Right. 
Is it a trend to have sort of conservation or sort of conscious traveling, like in, 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 in this part of the world in particular? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's in this part of the world in particular. I think this part of the world lends itself more easily or more obviously to that type of travel. But I think that's sort of a trend that we're observing across the board, whether it's in South America or Asia or even parts of Europe. Like I said, I think, you know, the new luxury in travel is experiential. I think people want to be a little bit more engaged. People don't want to be... People don't want to feel... Today's traveler doesn't want to feel like they're removed from the environment that they've gone to explore. And, I, you know, in the past, maybe the architecture architecture and the construction of a safari was guilty of doing just that. And I I just think people are, are wanting to tap into the more realistic environment that they've gone to, to visit. People conventionally think about Africa this way, and we've largely talked about it this way, but what about the urban trip to Africa? Like, there must be many that are possible, right? And, and people don't really think about these. Sure. I mean, know. the obvious one is Cape Town, of course. I mean, that's the, that is the city on the continent in terms of sort of Western, uh, Western trends and, and influences. But, you know, you've got great cities. Nairobi has taken a hit because of what happened there uh, a few years ago. But, you know, Nairobi has always been one of the great African cities. And it really is coming back. I met not long ago with a few representatives from various hotels and industries in that city. And, you know, they've got beautiful, the suburb of Karen is a beautiful area. They've got a great hotel, the Hemingway Hotel, which is there. They've got the animal orphanage there. Um, it's a great place to go and, and visit. You've also got emerging cities like Addis Ababa, which is uh, personally on my bucket list. I, I'm dying to get down there. Oh, you've been? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Tell her about it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, and, and, and that sort of starting no, to really emerge. No, really, tell her about it. <laughs> <laughs> or tell, tell their listeners about it, yeah. Um, no, it's like you said, it's like a, it's a city on the move for sure. I mean, it's, you sense the energy in the air. It's developing super fast and... I mean, it's geographic locations amazing. I mean, you're just surrounded by these highlands that you can take these kind of little mini buses up to, and you just have this view of the entire city. Incredible music scene in that city with like a venue seemingly on every corner playing kind of traditional Ethiopian jazz. Um, and and um, Dakar in Senegal too has an amazing music oh, yeah, scene from what totally. I know. Yeah. And I don't know, it has just this kind of energy that you found... I think in like major cities in India like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And while kind of those cities are now, some of them have just, are just kind of turning into these giant shopping malls, Ideas still really has that like energy of like markets and... It feels raw. It feels raw. It yeah. feels, uh, it's really just hits you in the face when you arrive. Um, in great. a good way. In though. a great way. Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> that good punch in the face. Yeah, but yeah. there's, and like a lot of cities I feel like are, I mean, it's just, if you just look at it from like an economic standpoint, like the whole, all of Sub-Saharan Africa is booming right now. I mean, you have this huge young population who are out doing things and making things and you really feel that in the cities. And I'm gonna get anecdotal again, but <laughs> I kind of had that very transition, that sort of transition in my perception with Johannesburg, for instance, where the first time I lived in Botswana was in 2008. And where I lived, Habarone is, you know, a short drive, it's right across the border from South Africa. So it's a very short drive to Johannesburg. And to get anywhere from Botswana, you pretty much have to go to Johannesburg first, at least from Southern Botswana. And I'd heard everything that a lot of people hear about Johannesburg, that it's this rough city full of crime, that it's super scary. And I believed it. And I was terrified of Johannesburg when I lived in Botswana the first time. Every time I passed through, 
you know, I was always on guard. There were always people telling me, be careful, don't leave your hotel, you know. Then I lived in Botswana again in 2013. And this time I was just kind of like, you know what, fuck it. Like, I'm going outside. I'm going to go explore this city. And it's amazing what's happening in that city. So I, the last time I was there, I stayed in an area called Bramfontein, which is like the kind of central business district of Johannesburg. And like a lot of cities around the world, for a long time, that's that area was just like off limits after dark. You know, it's where everyone came into work, but then after dark, it was just be kind of deserted. And it's where a lot of crime happened, a lot of violent crime happened. But the cities itself, you know, the, the mayor's office, the a lot of sort of nonprofits have done a lot to kind of revitalize it. And now it's amazing. There's an annual street art festival called uh, the City of Gold Festival that happens there, where just the entire central business district of Johannesburg gets covered in these beautiful murals done by graffiti artists from all over the world who fly into Johannesburg. There's right in the middle of it, every Saturday, there's something called the neighbor goods market where it's um, local producers, local food producers come together and it's just giant food market that you'd find in Brooklyn or something, you know? And then there's, you know, other parts of the city like Mabonang, which used to be this sort of down on its luck industrial area that's kind of going through the same revitalization. And so you see this in cities, I feel like across the continent that are just kind of because of stereotypes have been just thought of as off limits for the longest time. But once you experience them, you really like feel the dynamism that's going on. You know, you really feel that, that energy. And I think, I think it's, it's worth traveling to the continent of Africa and exploring the cities on it just as much as it is traveling and going on a safari. Yeah. And I think that's the most remarkable thing about going to Africa that you learn, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's there's no getting around the fact that it's a long way, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a long trip from the United States, especially to Southern Africa. But once you get there, right, you can really roll up into one trip all of these different experiences. And I think, you know, for for listeners, that's really the key takeaway that you can go to Johannesburg for a night and see this incredible street art scene and this incredible food scene. And it, when I was in Cape Town last, all the people in Cape Town, which is, you know, for a long time been the cool city and they had the World Cup and it was sort of mm -hmm. South Africa's leading city. All the cool kids in Cape Town want to move to Johannesburg now, which is, I think, incredible yeah. compared to 10 years ago when everybody was trying to get out of there. But you can stay there. You can see that. You can go to Cape Town and have this sort of South African uh, San Francisco kind of experience and do wine tasting and then spend three days on safari and then go to Zanzibar, the Seychelles or... Right you know, the coast of Mozambique and have a beach vacation for a few days. And I think I'm up to eight days now. Yeah. I mean, that's like an incredible four vacations yeah. in one. And, you know, it's sort of this amazing thing that people don't think about as a possibility when right. you have this stereotype of like going on a safari or just going to Cape Town. And I think what I would love for people to do is realize like, oh man, I have one big vacation this year. I can do all this different stuff instead of, you know, going to whatever Italy for seven days yeah and I'm, I'm doing I'm, like 19 cities in I'm, Italy in seven days I'm also right. telling you if you choose to do the African vacation over the European vacation the African vacation will be the one that you talk about mm -hmm. and you think about more than any of the other vacations you've done yep. it just sort of has that effect on you yeah and I mean I and I'm fully aware of how weird it sounds to be like oh god I don't want to go to Italy <laughs> no of I mean, course Italy's of course amazing. it's amazing Italy's amazing but, but you know back to back to Brad you know you talked to the open about why does everybody want to go to Africa 
you know, all of a sudden. And I think that's exactly it. It's is that we're living in a world where everybody's been to Western Europe and everybody's seen that stuff and it's great and I love it. And you know, if you took me to Rome this weekend, I would have a wonderful time and I would thank you for it. <laughs> but, <laughs> is that in the cards? Can, but, uh, yeah, you know, but but Aaron, you're exactly right. It's like that's the one thing that you come home with and it, you see like, it, oh my God, I really opened my you eyes. You feel like you've traveled. Yep. Like it, it's travel in the most ultimate sort of definition of the word. It's great. I mean, everything you do just feels like such an experience. It really is feeling like you're doing something for the very first time. Guys, when we retape this, can you just sell it a little harder? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you asked a bunch yeah. of people who've been to Africa to talk about how great it is. Yeah. I mean, this is what happens. I think. It's okay. It's whatever. Just in terms of logistics, is this the kind of thing? And it probably really depends. You're going to tell me it depends on the kind of trip and like where yeah. you're going. But like, is this the kind of thing where getting help through a service or through an agent or, or some other type of specialist is essential or can you kind of go it alone? I I mean, I don't think anything is ever like 100% essential. I do think this is probably one where you want a little bit more of a specialist muscle on it just because it is so different. I think you, you, you know, you kind of leave your instincts a little bit. You surrender your instincts a little bit when you're trying to navigate your first trip to a place that does feel so inherently different. And, you know, if you look at agencies like Abercrombie and Kent, for example, they made the reputation off the African safari travel. I mean, these people know exactly how to approach it. They know how to build your itinerary around what you might need or what you might want to do. And it's okay to feel like, you know, you're a little bit intimidated approaching planning a trip around something that you feel so inherently not familiar with. So I, I would say this probably lends itself, yes, to you employing the help of a specialist. I agree when it comes to a safari but I think I disagree when it comes to other types of trips. I feel like if you're going to go yeah. to like Stellenbosch and explore South African wine country, don't take a bus tour uh, with a hundred other people. Like rent yeah. a car and explore, stay in the beautiful hotels out to in wine fair, country. To be fair, that's probably a type of trip that people feel more inherently familiar with though. That's true. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, especially if it's like your first time trying to put together a safari, there's people out there who can do it a lot better than you can. You know? Yeah, I think and there definitely, are some... There's that. some places that offer safaris that you can only book through a travel right, specialist exactly. too, yeah. and and that don't do direct sales. And so to get access to some of the more exclusive or some of the smaller safari camps, you really have to book with a travel specialist who can get you into those places. And like some of those some of those exclusive camps, you're like flying into an airstrip on like a four passenger plane, and oh like my God, you the need Air them buses. to you need yeah. them to book that. Like you can't just show up at an airfield and be like, hey, can you take me to this camp? It's not going to happen. What is the most sort of surprising or fascinating trend that you're seeing on the horizon with regard to any type of travel to the continent? Hmm. I think it's the airlift, which is the sort of nerdy industry term for number of flights going in. Ethiopian Airlines uh, is doing a great job of increasing service to the United States on Boeing 787s, which are these fabulous new planes that help reduce jet lag, which is super <laughs> valuable on a really long flight. Mm. But I think all across the continent, it's getting easier not just to fly there from the U.S., but then the air connections within the continent are increasing and getting better. So totally. you can definitely do the types of trips we're talking about where you combine you know, Victoria Falls with a safari in Botswana with a visit to Cape Town and the wineries and then get home. All of that you know, 10 years ago was really difficult logistically. Now it's much easier to do and it, a range in terms of the flights and the amount of time it's going to take in terms of layovers 
yeah, what Paul's talking about is part of a greater trend, which is just this development of infrastructure in general. I mean, if you don't have infrastructure, you legitimately cannot access or do various things. And a lot of countries in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa especially have really invested in that in the past decade. So you're getting a lot more... Uh, airlift is one, you know, you're getting more airlines and more routes going in and, and sort of regionally, you're getting more regional carriers springing up. Uh, South South African Airways Connect, their regional carrier is increasing a lot of routes, which makes it easier to hop around. You've got new airports, such as the Victoria Falls Airport, which is receiving a lot of new visitors, which is, you know, making uh, the great one of the world, Victoria Falls, as well as all of the great safari camps in Zimbabwe, way more accessible than they've ever been. So it's really just a matter of getting that infrastructure together, which is something that, you know, Africa has lagged in compared to other places in the world. And that makes a massive difference. Yeah. I mean, I think to put it, 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 it's the legacy of colonialism, right? I mean, you look at a map of railroads on the African continent, and it's just a series of lines going from the interior to the coast with no interconnection between them. Um, I think as recently as, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted to get from one Francophone country in West Africa to another, you have to fly to Paris first and make oh a connection and go back. Wow. So, you know, that shows kind of how far it's come now where there's, there's you know, independent budget airlines that function the same way as like a JetBlue does or something within South Africa, for example. And more and more, you know, they're talking about an African Union passport now so that mm-hmm. people from different countries within Africa can travel across borders without, you know, right now it's easier for you and me to to cross a border within Africa than it is for some Africans to cross a border in Africa. So yeah, it's coming a long way. And I think that is one of the biggest trends is that it's just easier to get from place to place within it. Great. Any, any parting thoughts? Go. Don't put it off. Head don't, to Africa now. Don't yeah. wait till you're retiring. It's, it's Definitely don't there. wait till you're retiring. Yeah. If you wait that long, you won't see it all. Because there's so much to see. Yeah, yeah, so go now. Take your first trip now and, and then and, start planning the next one. Yeah, and, and just don't be intimidated by approaching this beast, yeah, exactly. the scary beast that can be planning this trip to Africa. It's completely accessible. Once you're there, it starts to make sense and everything is a little less intimidating than you probably thought it might have been if you've not been to the continent before. And it's just one of the most wonderful travel experiences. And you take away things from that continent that you can't take away from experience that you have anywhere else. I mean, it sounds like it's 40 of the most memorable travel experiences or 60 or whatever, (laughs) right? But I think this is important because people don't think about Europe this way. They think about like, well, I'm going to go to Italy or I'm going to go to Spain or I'm going to go to, you know, Denmark or whatever. And one of the most important transitions in thinking is exactly what you guys have been talking about, which is that pick a spot. It's very, it's very different and expect to go back yeah. more than once. You're going to get multiple different kinds of Don't vacation. think of it as Africa. Think of it as Kenya and Tanzania yeah. and South Africa. You know, the way we think of Europe yeah. as, yeah. as, as yeah. Absolutely. And, and Aaron's completely right. It's going to be each one of those trips is going to be the trip you're going to be talking about, you know, for years. I mean, look at me. I can't stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're gonna, because we're done. <laughs> um, thanks, all of you guys, for coming and talking about this. It's really, really great. Um, you're certainly making me think about when I'm going to go for the first time. And to everybody for listening, 
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes and we are on SoundCloud and everywhere else that fine podcasts can be had. Visit us at cntraveler.com and at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube. We are also at cntraveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us or otherwise leave us comments on Facebook. We would love to get feedback about the podcast. We love it when that comes in. We've had some great suggestions come in. And review us on iTunes. Um, we would love to hear from you there as well. Why don't we go around and tell people how they can reach out to you, Aaron? Uh, yeah, you can find me at Aaron underscore Florio on Instagram and Aaron Florio CNT on Twitter. I'm at Submodak on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at P underscore Brady. And I'm at Bradrick. That's it. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>